Hey everyone, I'm Renee Bennett. Consider me the girl next door, having conversations that will help challenge and shape your worldview in a culture that has turned our moral compass upside down and inside out. To chat with me further, come join me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. No topics are off limits. I'm really glad you're here. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, everyone. How are you? It's so great to be with you on another Girl Next Door episode. Today, we're continuing another episode around pop psychology. Today is probably one of the most important ones when it comes to pop psychology because we're going to talk about the language that we're using. And this is actually the very reason that a lot of what once was uh, psychology ideas saved for the therapy room have really become a part of our everyday and daily life. So last week, you guys loved it that I dropped two episodes at once, um, which was around the whole topic of ADHD, where I tried to separate and unpack the difference between those who genuinely um, need uh, that diagnosis as opposed to are we over-diagnosing and mislabeling. Um, so that is a pop psychology idea. If you're not sure what pop psychology is, make sure that you go back and have a listen to that. I've also just dropped a bonus episode alongside today, which you guys were so pumped that I dropped two last week. I know one of you were like, Renee, I had you my whole way to work. It was amazing. I couldn't believe I had a double episode. Well, you have that again this week because I've just also dropped an episode with uh, an interview that I did with a young adult called Nicholas, who just recently as a 27-year-old has been diagnosed with ADHD. Of course, we're seeing a rise in young adults being diagnosed. So we really, I love talking with him because I loved his view. Um, he is someone that I think genuinely did get missed as a child, but he was able to really speak into that as someone who had ADHD. So that was excellent. But but today we're going to look at therapy speak and how the the rise in popularity of a lot of um, psychology ideas that were once, you know, uh, just the the minority has just become so mainstream. And so I'm not sure what came first, whether it was the the ideas or the way that we speak about them. But we're going to unpack today a few things around therapy speak. Now, before we go any further, let me explain to you or give you a few ideas so you get the picture of what it is. But if you listen for it and now after today's episode, no doubt you will have a listen to how much therapy based language has made its way and become completely normalized in particularly young people conversation, but even you might find yourself like after day, you'll be like, oh my gosh, I use this myself. So I think it's creeping into everybody's language. So I'm talking about words that were once upon a time saved for the therapy room, which have now become normalized. Words like red flag, triggered, my anxiety, my OCD, or I'm so OCD, or I'm traumatized, or oh, one of my favorites, my lived experience. Now, all of these words, and there are many, many more, are known as therapy speak. So we're going to do four things today. Now, pop psychology is what has made these popular. So we're going to do four things. First, we're going to look at uh, what it is. 
And you guys gave me a bunch of examples. So we'll go into that a little bit more. Then we're going to look at number two. Why do we use this? Why have these words made their way into our everyday conversation? Thirdly, we're going to look at has this had an impact on us? And then fourthly, we're going to look at if it stacks up with our Christian worldview. So let's go with number one. What is it? Well, like I said, it's a part of pop psychology and our language has morphed and changed so rapidly. Now, I've done a whole episode around this when it comes to the dictionary. The dictionary actually has words deleted and new words added every year for this reason, but our language has become so much more therapy laden. It's become very um, full of labels and very intense therapy words. So words that were once used by therapists or were saved for therapy sessions have now become a part of our everyday language. Now, words that professionals or therapists used to use to describe conditions or disorders, we now use them like all the time. And young people, and this is probably a part of the, again, the reason that it's becoming so popular, young people are seeing this on TikTok and Twitter. Obviously, TikTok is more uh, popular amongst young people, but there are a whole bunch of, I don't know, self-professed professionals that are using pop psychology therapy language to give advice to young people about topics that were never heard of just a few years ago. Things like how to set boundaries with your loved ones or how to break up with friends. And I'm not talking boyfriends or girlfriends, how to break up with friends or how to regulate your nervous system. All these things that once upon a time we never heard of. Let me give you an example. On Twitter, one user was giving advice on how to set boundaries. And according to her, and she gives you the words, this is what you can say to a loved one when you need to set a boundary. Hey, I'm so glad you reached out. I'm actually at capacity right now. There's a good uh, therapy phrase. I'm at capacity and I don't think I can hold appropriate space for you right? All of us know exactly what that means because this is becoming common. There was a TikTok therapist who also gave advice to their users on how to break up with their friends. And according to her, you should be using lines like this. I have treasured our season of friendship, but we're moving in different directions in life. How interesting. I've never broken up with a friend that way in my life. I don't know, have you guys, but it's becoming more and more common. Now, when I was a kid, the language was so different. This is how quickly language is changing and and evolving and morphing. Like we never said things like your words are violence or I need to hold space for myself. We would have looked at you like, what are you talking about? Um, we never used the word trauma ever unless someone actually went through something traumatic If I heard the word safe space, I would have thought that was to do with stranger danger and neighborhood watch safe houses. Uh, Anxiety, we didn't even really hear that word. It was very, very rare that someone had anxiety. Uh, And if I heard the word trigger, the only context I had was that must be the, you know, the trigger on a gun. And the word toxic, that would have been used only for actual harmful chemicals. So we can see how quickly this therapy language has just all of a sudden become, well, well, language that once was used for other things has become therapy language, and now we're starting to use it. 
Gwyneth Paltrow a few years ago divorces her husband, Chris, and I forget his last name, but he's the singer of Coldplay. She didn't use the word divorce. She said that we are engaging in, and I quote, conscious uncoupling. Yep, think that just means divorce, people. What about you? Do you find yourself using therapy speak? I will have to say I'm guilty. Probably the one I use the most would be OCD, where um, I'd say things like, well, I vacuumed twice today. I think my OCD was coming out. Or, um, you know, I I might use the word toxic. Oh my gosh, that person's so toxic. Now, what I want to know and what I think we need to really unpack on this episode is how has this evolution of language shaped a generation? Like, how is this working out for us? And are we defining the language or is the language defining us? A therapist on Twitter uh, noted recently, and I quote, he said, I can't remember the last time I had a conversation with a young person that wasn't filled with therapy language. People have become incredibly fluent in the language of trauma and anxiety, but it's done nothing to improve their emotional awareness or maturity. So I asked you guys on Instagram what therapies speak that you guys hear, and I also asked you to weigh in on what impact that you think it's having and why you think that we use it. Um, So let me give you a couple of examples. Obviously, there's the ones that I've already stated, but you guys told me that you hear a lot. The word trauma was the number one word that you guys hear. Uh, Heaps of you were like, I hear the word trauma, 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 trauma. Narcissistic was another popular word that you guys are hearing. PTSD. um, I keep saying the word trauma. Triggering. uh, yeah, there's PTSD again, my truth, my boundaries. Some of you reckon that's just going to a whole new level, protecting my peace, overstimulated. Uh, a lot of you are hearing people talk about my therapist. <laughs> you have a dentist, a doctor, now you've got a therapist. The word sensory, uh, triggered again, uh, psycho, bipolar. I hear bipolar quite a bit. Mental breakdown, one of you said. Social anxiety, I hear that a lot. ADHD, I hear that one a lot. Depressed anxiety. Stimming. I don't know what stimming is. One of you guys have to explain to me. I've never heard of stimming. Um, Protecting your peace, validation, trauma response. The list is endless. Now, having a shared language can be a good thing. A shared language helps us to better understand ourselves and to share our experience. So we've looked at number one what exactly is it? And I've given you examples, so I'm sure that you're on the same page. But let's have a look at number two. Why do we use therapy speak? Now, the first thing, I've got three reasons. We're really going to focus on number three. But the first reason that we use it, and I think this is really important to point this out, is some people are using it because they are actually describing what they're feeling and experiencing. I therefore don't put that reason in the therapy speak basket. Uh, Now, one person on Instagram said this language helps to break down thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, which helps us to communicate how we feel and then regulate those thoughts, feelings, and actions. I completely agree with that. I just wouldn't call that therapy speak because those people are actually genuinely using language to genuinely explain experiences that they're going through. And this is the big distinction we need to make today. 
I'm not talking about people using the language to actually um, describe complex trauma or actual, you know, people that have been genuinely diagnosed with, say, anxiety or OCD or bipolar, because it is important that we have language to communicate and regulate. But the question is, are we in general, using that language in a way that's matching the experience. And really, and this is going to come down a bit later when we when we look at the impact it's having, when we're not using it for the right reasons and in the right ways, it actually has an impact on the people who really do need the language, who really are going through complex trauma. So I just wanted to make that distinction. Therapy speak is not language used by genuine uh, people who are genuinely going through um, experiences who need the language. So I think what's happening though is, and this is our focus of today, is that this therapy language is no longer used just for that, but we're, we're using it en masse and it's not matching the human experience that we're having. So when people truly experience trauma or PTSD or triggers or a narcissistic family member, they need this language so that uh, they can describe or identify what's happening to them. So let's look at an example of that. Take the word trauma. Now, the word trauma is most likely not appropriate for, say, a 15-year-old girl who has experienced her first breakup with a boyfriend. Now, I can hear some people already going, you can't say that. And, And that is true. What is trauma for one person is not trauma for another. But I want us to use our common sense here, guys. Now, there might be the occasional exception, but what's happening is because we don't want to hurt the person who does have that exception, we then make a blanket rule. But making those blanket rules is not helping us. Now, there might genuinely be a 15-year-old who maybe has been abandoned and has been through complex trauma who might find a breakup absolutely traumatic. But in general, in general, that is not the same as someone who really has experienced complex trauma. Okay, so we're going for the rule, not for the exception. So is that 15-year-old experiencing trauma or are they experiencing distress and rejection and some grief and some heartbreak? So we will get into this more towards the end when we look at the impact, but it can be tricky because there is no black or white line in the sand to tell if someone is using these words genuinely or if they're using them as therapy speak. So again, if we take the word trauma, um, say as a child, I nearly drowned, right? Then as a teenager, I go to a pool party and someone pushes me into the pool as a joke. Now, to a normal everyday person, that might be annoying or it might be funny, but for me, that genuinely could could cause a trauma response. So you see what I'm saying, right? There's no black and white. And so we need to use our common sense when we're talking about therapy speak. Um, Say if you had Cameron and he'd never experienced being pushed in and nearly drowning as a child and, you know, him and his brother are mucking around and his brother's just being stupid and he pushes him in. Now, 
he might be really mad and he might come up out of that water and go, you idiot, you just traumatize me. Well, that's therapy speak, right? Because clearly he's not traumatized. He's just using the language. So we can't say this word is therapy speak. This word isn't for that reason. But in general, we can all see that there is an excess of this type of language and it is being used on many, many occasions in an overreach kind of a way. Second reason on why we might use it is simply because it's popular and we get influenced by each other. Um, This is funny, guys, but when I was going through school, if someone told you something that you thought wasn't true, and I have no idea why we did this, and if anyone else was a kid in the 80s, guys, come and let me know, we would put our hand on our chin and we would rub our chin and go, oh, Benny, Benny, I have no idea why we did that. Literally, if someone lied to you, you would put your finger on your chin, you'd rub your chin and go, oh, Benny, isn't that bizarre? <laughs> you guys are probably like, what the heck? Um, but that's because we are all influenced by what's popular. So, of course, we're influenced by society. When we keep hearing therapy speak, we're going to use it ourselves. And like I said, I use it myself. I mean, I vacuumed twice on Saturday, and I'm pretty sure I said to Cameron, gee, my OCD's coming out today. So there's that reason. And again, it's really innocent. Third reason that we might use it, and this is where I want to focus a bit, is when we are intentionally using therapy language for events or emotions that really don't warrant it. Now, there can be many reasons why we do this, and we're going to explore that in just a second. But someone says something that we don't um, we don't like, and so we say, well, that person triggered me. Or we might be tired and we need to cancel some plans with a friend. And so we text them and we go, I just need to set a boundary. I need to self-care right now. When really what we should just say is, hey, I'm super tired. Do you mind if we rain check? Um, I've had people who don't like something that I say on my podcast and they might message me and go, you hurt me. I cried. And I'm like, are you kidding? I literally have never met you in my life. Um, that's therapy speak when we start saying that someone else's words who we don't even know hurt. Um, when we start using words, you know, everything's a red flag or everyone who doesn't put our needs first is a narcissist. Or like I said before, when a 15 year old breaks up with a boyfriend and they say, I'm traumatized. So this is where we really need to focus because this is the most concerning. And this is actually how therapy speak is being used the most. It's actually is being used intentionally, but it's being used for events and emotions that don't warrant it. Why would we do this? I was really thinking about it. Why are we doing it? Why do we use language that was once reserved for the therapy room to now describe everyday human experiences? And then in a minute, we'll have a look at like not just the why, but what impact is this having? So I asked you guys what you thought on why do you think we're doing this? Why are we using this language to describe everyday human experiences and challenges? You gave me some good ones. Um, So I'm going to kind of mix in some of your answers with what I think. But the first one, one of you said is it creates a victim mentality. And, um, And I think we... It's, it's easier sometimes just to be the victim because it does remove our responsibility. Um, so secondly, you guys said that you think that people use it because it gives them an excuse to act entitled. 
don't shoot me guys, shoot the messenger. I mean, don't shoot me the messenger. I'm just, I'm just telling you what everyone said on Instagram. Um, a lot of you also said that we use it because it empowers our non-accountability for our actions. So in other words, we're removing people's personal responsibility towards our emotions and our reactions. Heaps of you said that. Heaps of you were like, we use therapy speak because it removes our personal responsibility. Because if I can just, if I can just have an excuse, if I can tell you, well, I am this way because of this, then we don't have to actually change. We can just blame and that's a whole heap easier. A lot of you also said that it's just an excuse from us having to overcome our challenges and actually do the work, which is similar to not wanting to take personal responsibility. Um, Some of you said that we use it to avoid uncomfortable or hard conversations. That's a good one. It's almost like a method of self-protection. So it's like, well, you know, if I tell you um, that my anxiety is triggered right now, then I can do that to self-protect because I know a difficult conversation's coming. So if I say that, well, that's going to stop the other person from having that hard conversation because they'll be like, oh, I don't want to make that worse. So we can use it as excuses. Now, one person said, and this is a really good one. One person had a real rant. They're like, have you heard of everyone being unhappy lately? No, because we're depressed. And so again, this person's saying, you know, rather than just saying, well, I'm unhappy, everyone jumps to this word, I'm depressed. This person went on to say, because unhappiness implies that choices are required, right? So in other words, that requires personal responsibility, whereas depression requires appeal. And this person continued on to say psychologists are now the new high priests and the church have avoided topics of confession and repentance. So people have found a secular counterfeit. I thought that was a really um, interesting um, and very valid uh, opinion about why we're using this therapy speak. So let me add a few thoughts on why I think we're using this language Like I said before, I really do think it's a way of protecting ourselves so that others can't call us out. So if I say I'm triggered or I don't feel safe or I am traumatized, well, what's the other person meant to do? They're not going to call me out on something that they want to call me out on. Most of us don't push back on someone who says those things. We don't want to challenge them if they're experiencing such highly challenging emotions. Now, it can also be an excuse for getting out of situations that we don't want to face. Now, this is where I'm probably anyone in the academy or anyone that's in our church or my kids at my house, they will know that um, I, I love discipling people. And when I hear therapy speak, I out of love, obviously, um, I won't back off. I'll be like, well, no, if that's the case, like I remember years ago, I had someone who would always say, well, I've got social anxiety, so I can't walk into the room. And so I didn't allow that to be an excuse for that person to never walk into the room. And so I'm like, well, no, we're, we're going to face this. So people often will use it because they think, well, I can get out of a situation that I don't want to face. So I read an article about this young guy and he spent months ghosting his own parents and they were devastated. And so the sister stepped in and she tried to mediate between the brother and the parents. 
And the brother resisted. And the way that he got away with it is he just said, well, he created this narrative around his safety and his boundaries and his personal rules. And that just left the parents with nowhere to go. And rather the parents going, no, we're talking about this. We tend to hear those things like my boundaries, my rules, and we just back off. So what we're doing is we're couching, we're couching one's behavior in, in this therapy speak for self-protection, but it can also make us sound really virtuous as well, right? Like we hear someone say that, so, oh, wow, they sound really virtuous. And again, it's really another form of self-protection. Maybe too, we think that if we use this language that can add more weight to what we're saying. So if we're nervous about something, rather than just saying, oh, I'm really nervous about that, that just doesn't seem severe enough these days. So instead we would say, I've got a lot of anxiety about doing this because we want people to really understand how we feel. So we can tend to kind of over overstate it by using therapy language. It can also be a way of seeking validation or even getting attention. Okay, so we've looked at what it is. We've looked at why we use it, but let's have a look at the impact that it's having on us. My thought around therapy speak is, is it influencing us? Is it changing us by using all of these words in our common everyday language? What do you guys think? Um, Because I think there's an important question that we have to ask ourselves. We have to ask ourselves, is using this language making us better? Is it improving us? Is it helping us move forward and make progress? Is our obsession with mental health and mental health language improving our mental health? I had someone say to me the other day, oh, I'm, you know, you're passionate about mental health like me. And I actually pushed back and I said, no, I'm actually, it's not that I'm passionate about mental health. I'm passionate about mental resilience. Plenty of people are passionate about mental health and and I'm looking at the fruit of that and it's not making us more resilient and it's not making us better. And I think we have to look at the data here and we all can see it. We all can see all the people in our lives uh, or in our workplace or in our university or in the classroom who are just riddled with, with labels and and disorders. And so I'm not obsessed with mental health. I'm obsessed with mental resilience. So let's look at the data. I heard a podcast between two clinical psychologists the other day, and this literally blew my mind. I'd never heard this before or considered this, but they suggested that since psychiatry became a thing, like since psychiatry became a Uh, for want of a better word, industry about a hundred years ago, that mental health has actually declined more, not strengthened. I was like, what? First of all, I'd never considered when psychiatry and psychology first became a thing. And when even for that matter, mental health became a thing, but it all happened about a hundred years ago in the 1930s. So with the rise of the psychiatry and psychology industry has come the rapid decline of mental health. I thought that was fascinating. So I looked it up and mental health literally had its origins tracked back to the development in clinical psychiatry. Now there's an article about this in PubMed Central if you want it, come along to my Instagram and I'll um, send it to you. But this supports what these psychologists were saying that in 1946, the International Health Conference, they decided, guys, this is going to blow your mind. They decided to establish 
the World Health Organization and alongside it at the same time, a mental health association. That was in 1946. This was the beginning of our mental health labeling and obsession. And the more we've labeled and obsessed, the more it's declined. Mental health, according to many articles, started declining around the same time and has been in chronic decline ever since. Blew my mind. Now, July of last year, here in Australia, the Government Department in Health and Aged Care released, and you can look it up, this is literally what it's called, a major mental health study in Australia. It was done by Mark Butler. So you can look that, look that up, July 2022, major mental health study in Australia. Guys, this is so sad. This study, and it's one of the biggest of its kind, suggests that more than two out of five Australians experience a mental health issue in their lifetime. And in 2020 to 2021, and of course that was over COVID too, more than 3.4 million Australians sought help from a healthcare professional for mental health. And this is sad, across their lifetime, one in six Australians reported having suicidal thoughts or behaviours. And 38% of all Australians have been close to someone who has attempted or died by an attempt. And around 39.6% of young people aged 16 to 24 years were found to have experienced a mental disorder in the previous 12 months, which is higher, by the way, than all other age groups. Guys, that is so sad. We're heading up to nearly half. 39.6% of all young people in the last 12 months have experienced a mental disorder. And I quote the study, demand for mental health support has surged to record levels across the country, particularly for young Australians. Now, an important question here is why are the stats so high? Now, there's obviously the obvious reason that mental health um, declining at rapid rates, um, it could be that it actually genuinely is, right? That obviously it is. It could be that we're looking for it more. And you know, when you look for things more and you you will find more of it, but could it also be a self-fulfilling prophecy? I don't know. These are all my thoughts around it. It's like, genuinely has it gone down? Are we asking people more and that's why it's gone up? Um, The stats have gone up or is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? As in the more we talk about it, look for it, the more we see it and are convinced that something is wrong with us. Now, I think it's fair to say that whatever the reason, whatever we're doing right now is not making us better. It is not helping us move forward or making us progress or building resilience. We do have, and if you are with young people as much as I am, I would say nearly half of the young people I come across are suffering in some kind of a way. Now, whether that be mild, whether that be diagnosed, I'm just saying that that over half would be using this this therapy language of I'm anxious or I'm triggered or I'm a red flag or whatever it is. So is this helping us move forward? You know, our lives are better and easier than ever, and yet we are struggling more than ever and something's not adding up. 
Now, I had a friend just this week tell me that in the early 2000s, they ran a connect group for doctors because these doctors couldn't often get to church on a Sunday. So they did one midweek because of the hours that they work. And within that group, there was a really large group of Indian doctors who said, this is so fascinating, that when they each flew to Australia to come and live and work, they could literally feel this heaviness as they flew into Australia. I don't know if you guys... When, when I go places, I feel that too. Like I felt a real heaviness when I came into Bangkok, but I, I loved when I came into Chiang Mai and I'm like, what is that? Um, so we, we get a feeling for a place when we come into it. So these Indian doctors felt a real heaviness. And now you've got to remember, this is the early 2000s. They could not believe how common depression and mental health issues were were here in Australia back in the early 2000s. They also commented to my friend that they couldn't believe how many doctors gave out meds like candy. And they were saying like in India, people's lives are far harder, genuinely traumatic, and yet people over there had far more resilience. So I thought that was just a really interesting story. Could it be that our obsession with mental health is causing more mental health, like telling a generation that they're sick, especially with all of our therapy speak, is making them sicker. So let's explore that potential too, like about the impact that this is having. Now, a lot of you guys also weighed in on this as well. So another impact it's having is, um, are we creating our own reality? So language is a really powerful shaper of who we are. We all know that. I talked about that last week. I mean, this is biblical, but clinical psychologists like Dr. McFillan, he says, he talks about this, that we are creators of our own reality. We can actually create an inner world in our own minds, and then we project that into our physical world. So if we are saying that we're disordered, well, that becomes our reality. So that's that's another potential impact of therapy speak. Another impact uh, of this therapy speak is that certain words are losing their meaning. Now, I talked about this a bit earlier and how this is not fair on people who genuinely experience difficult and challenging circumstances. It's really not fair. Like if you are traumatized because you missed the bus, how can I be traumatized when I've been abused, right? Now, I've got a friend of mine who's studying this right now very clever young man. And he said, Renee, we actually have to keep changing the names of things because what once described a medical diagnosis now has become slang. So he gave me the example of dementia. Dementia is now so overused and has become a part of therapy speak that in the medical field, they're starting to label dementia as major neurocognitive disorder. How fascinating is that? So not only is it watering down the meaning of words, but it actually waters down and minimizes people who truly experience these things. And I think that's, we really have to consider that. Many of you said to me on Instagram that you are sick of hearing people overuse words, particularly the word trauma. Now, a good friend of mine, a very experienced leader who also works with young people talked to me about actual complex trauma. And he said the same thing. You know, he works daily with young people, as does Georgia, by the way. 
who really have experienced neglect or abuse. Now, complex trauma means that they suffer trauma over and over and over and over. That is trauma. So when we use it for something else, it really does um, take away from people who truly experience that. And when we use the word to describe something far less challenging, it just minimizes those who truly suffer. Because actual trauma, my friend was explaining this to me, actual trauma, particularly as we're developing as a child and a young person, it changes brain development um, in, in young people who particularly experience neglect or abuse on a daily basis. So if you want to know a little bit more about that or be able to scale trauma, there's a online test you can do called ACE. I'm not sure what it stands for and I haven't looked it up yet, but my friend who works with complex trauma young people said that you can actually um, look at that, the ACE test to measure if it's, you know, on a scale where a situation sits. And so maybe some of us need to do that so that we can be careful on how we use these words. Another impact I think it's having thirdly is uh, it is making us far less resilient. So one woman on Instagram said to me that by today's standards, her life is a horror story. And I would say the same. Like if you guys actually actually knew some of the stuff that I've been through, by today's standards, I should have anxiety, trauma. I should be in recovery due to a childhood where I was exposed to emotional abuse, narcissism, and even some violence. I was put on an airplane by myself well, with my sister from the age of five. I was taken to Kings Cross Red Light District as an eight-year-old to expand my worldview. If you guys don't know what that is because you don't live in Australia, look it up. It's in Sydney. I was kept against my will for six weeks with one of my parents. I was laughed at when I when I asked for monetary help. Um, the list is actually endless. So by rights, my story is a horror story. If I go by you know the length, the way that we use language today. But I don't say that. I never use words like, oh, I had trauma as a child or emotional abuse or definitely verbal abuse. Um, But I won't say that. I will say things like I had a crazy childhood, but the Lord protected me. He was my father. He put wonderful people in my life who became like family. He gave me purpose and hope and a future. And that future for me doesn't include anxiety or trauma or depression. And so it really does depend how we frame our experiences So I'm wondering, is this therapy language making a generation more resilient? What do you think? There, of course, are many contributing factors to that, by the way. I'm not saying that this is the only one, but from where I stand, I would have to say that I don't believe that this talk, this therapy speak is making us more resilient. We have a generation who can describe their feelings and label their feelings the best better than any other generation, but experience them with the least amount of resilience. So I don't feel that from looking around me at the fruit, that being able to describe our experiences is helping us be more resilient to them. Now, have you guys seen Sound of Freedom? When I walked out of Sound of Freedom the other day, I was like, that, that, and what that girl went through, that is trauma. Another impact it's having is we are pathologizing life experiences. Okay, let me say that again. We are pathologizing life experiences. You know, to be human is to suffer. To be human is to have challenging times. 
but labeling everything is pathologizing being human. And finally, it is, is it, let me ask you the question, is it just keeping us stuck? Like, how can we move through, move forward and make progress when we keep telling ourselves that we're disordered or triggered or anxious or whatever it might be? Even if we do experience severe challenges, naming it can certainly be helpful when it's warranted. But again, for the purpose of understanding, not so that we can sit in it, but so that we can start processing it and move forward. So for example, if we recognize that we have some social anxiety, the worst thing to do is just to use that as an excuse then to retreat or to stay that way. So I'll give you the example um, uh, you know, one of my kids had two shocking car accidents in a row. They were rear-ended. One of the car, one of the accidents, the car was written off. It was pretty bad. This this child, adult child's experiences. Now, not long after that, this child had a panic attack, and I recognized it straight away. And I said to this child, "You know what? You don't have anxiety." you are not a sufferer of panic attacks. You're not going to keep having them. This is a normal response to a life event. Your body is telling you that you've been through something. And so this leads me to my final part of the episode. What is God's plan for all this? What should our Christian worldview be? And I think this helps us the most. And I want to give us some practical stuff here as we finish off. How should we view this whole pop psychology therapy language and even the mental health labels? Well, firstly, I would say, and I want to explore this on another episode, but God has actually created our bodies and our minds in a beautifully incredible and very smart way. Our bodies know what to do when when something happens. Like Our bodies know what they need, right? So if we have a fever, a temperature, um, or if we have bruising or a scab or a cough, we look at those things as, oh, that's bad. But it's actually our body fixing itself. A temperature happens as an immune response to an infection or a virus. You know, bruising is the blood rushing to somewhere where we might have banged ourselves, And that's a bruise. We look at that and go, that's bad, but it's actually not bad. It's good. It means, yes, we hurt ourselves. We banged our leg. I got a huge bruise from Billy the other day literally ran into me because she had a pot plant on her face. She's the funniest dog. I had a huge bruise. Now that bruise reminded me that I went through something, but the bruise is not bad. It actually was my body fixing itself. All of these things that we think are sicknesses are actually our bodies doing their thing. I think that's how God intended our minds as well. Our minds, my doctor explained this to me ages ago that when I felt some anxiety symptoms, She said to me, Renee, this is just your body protecting you and warning you, hey, slow down, rest, give your mind a break. But what we do, we focus on the illness. We focus on the label, right? We focus on the bruise. We focus on the moment I got the bruise rather than going, hey, this symptom, this disorder, this label that I have, maybe this is my brain's way and my emotions way of healing. What a beautiful way to look at it because God has made our bodies intuitively. So instead we can say, okay, what is this showing me about the changes I need to make? When I have an emotional response, I can trust my mind and my body that it's working intuitively and protecting and healing. My mind and my body know what to do to take me through through this passage of time or this experience. That's how God created us. The second thought I want you to take away 
is that God tells us there is power. There is power of life or death in the tongue. Proverbs 18, 21, there's so many scriptures. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. When we use therapy speak, we are going to eat the fruit. If we are constantly talking about being anxious, being triggered, needing needing space and capacity for the and, you know I'm at capacity and you know we're going to eat the fruit of what we say the book of James talks about the tongue it might be tiny but it's like the rudder of a big ship it might be small but it can steer the ship the tongue is small a small part of our body, but it can steer and shape our whole life. There are 120 scriptures about our tongue, and many of them are cautions. Scriptures like Ephesians 4.29 that says, Only let talk come out of your mouth that is useful for building others up so that it may benefit them. So, you know, and, and when, when it comes to the tongue and words and the power of words, what does God say about you? Who does God say I am? You know, the devil tried to confuse Jesus about his identity in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, do this or do that. Do you know, let me speak this over you today. Do you know who God says I am or who you are? I want you to take this on as yourself today. God says, I am saved. I am chosen. I am complete. I am forgiven. I'm a new creation. I am a child of God. I'm redeemed. I am light. I am more than a conqueror. I am God's temple. I am called. I am created for good works. I am safe in Christ. I am victorious. I am not condemned. I am guarded by God's peace. I'm accepted. I am healed. I am loved. I am beautiful. I'm not alone. I am strong, I am blessed, I am joyful, I am precious to God, I am wonderfully made, I am God's. Isn't that far more powerful than I am triggered, I am afraid, I am anxious, I am this, I am that? Let's start speaking what God says over us because that is powerful and it shapes who we are. When we get into agreement with God's word and finally, what does God tell us to do in his word when we're anxious or suffering? Well, he tells us so many things. He gives us examples of of changing our language. You know, um, in in the New Testament, I think it's in Philippians, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's Paul talking. You know, not not to sit in in the weakness, but we can actually say, hey, when I'm weak, then I'm strong because, because then it's God's power rests on me. I will glory in my weakness because then Christ's power rests on me. David in the Psalms talks so much about when his soul is disquieted within him. And what does he say to do? To remember all of the good things that God has done, to meditate on his word day and night. Philippians 4 tells us, don't be anxious about anything. But what does he do? He says, pray, give God thanks, ask God for what you need. Matthew 6 talks about mindfulness. It says, don't worry about tomorrow, focus on the here and now. That's mindfulness. 1 Corinthians 7.32, it tells us that God wants us to be free from anxiety. 1 Peter 5.7 tells to cast our anxiety. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to dwell on those things or to talk about those things. The Bible says the complete opposite. So I want us to each take responsibility. And I'm going to give you homework. That I want you to start changing your narrative. I'm going to start changing my narrative. That we be careful with the things that come out of our mouth. I speak over this generation. And that's what I always say to the young people in my care, the young people in the academy. I always say good things over them. I go, no, you guys are strong. You guys are called. You guys are leaders. You guys are incredible. I always talk God's word over them. You are chosen. You're called. You're 
So the challenge is to change our narrative that we can triumph through adversity by getting into agreement with God's word. We can become resilient. We can become strong. I am who he says I am, not who the world says I am. So there you go. 45 minutes, guys. I think you're enjoying the longer episodes, but it is just so important. I just really, really wanted to make sure that we talked about that today and um, come along to my Girl Next Door Instagram. But you know what helps me even more? Can you guys please do a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple, but also a written review on Apple? That really, really helps, especially because I get the very few people that are like, you know, when people give you a one star that you're like, okay, that's like really ridiculous. Like you hate my content that much. They clearly don't have the same worldview. So if you can do the five star, that would be amazing. It helps keep my, uh, the podcast in the algorithm. And of course I've got my buy me a coffee people come along there. Thank you so much this week. I had, um, Elise, um, thank you to you who jumped in there and bought some coffees. And of course, all of my members, guys, I love you. Make sure you come back next week. I've got a really interesting topic. It's one for the girls, but I have a sneaky suspicion that the boys are going to secretly listen. You have to come back next week to find out what it is. I love you all. I'll see you then. Bye.